My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends? Oh, I'm just trying to help you make money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. When people in this business screw up, you got to call them out. Yet most commentators are reluctant to go there. This drives me nuts. I think we should approach this business with the same rigor that you use to examine, say, the NFL. Unfortunately, the stock market has a lot less accountability than pro football, which is a major reason why people have such a hard time making money. Even on days like today, where the Dow gained 188 points, S&P jumped 1.06%, and the Nasdaq surged 1.77%. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about with this lack of accountability. Last night, Cisco Systems, one of the largest companies in the world, the gold standard in networking, reported, and within a few minutes, the press universally condemned the quarter. The stock was instantly blasted in after-hours trading, to the point where some trades were put on down four bucks from the close. As someone who used to cover sports for a living and, of course, still covers business, I was shocked by the shoddy and ahistorical reportage. I followed Cisco since it came public 31 years ago, way back when John Mordridge was running the show. The key metric for Cisco isn't the earnings per share of the revenue, it's order growth, because order growth indicates future earnings. This quarter, the order growth was so spectacular, especially the long-suffering service provider business, that I figured anyone with a clue would focus on the dramatic turnaround in Cisco's fortunes. Plus, you saw some outstanding growth from their software business. No. The press totally ignored the single most important data point, didn't focus on the software. They focused on the rearview mirror, and they got it completely and utterly wrong. Sure enough, the stock rebounded hard today. But there will be absolutely no penalty for the journalists who fake people out. Hmm was an astounding misdirection play by an entire team of scholars. How about all this Kool-Aid drinking coverage of cryptocurrencies? Not long ago, I decided that I had to own some crypto. I've been recommending gold for years as a hedge against inflation. I think it's a good idea to put 10% of your portfolio in gold as a kind of insurance plan. I've been saying that since the show began. But as Bitcoin caught fire, I gave you permission to put half of that in crypto instead. Part of me bought into the idea that it's scarce and can't be created easily which, like gold, makes it a good storehouse of value, perhaps even better than gold because it was so scarce. Maybe that was true not that long ago, but with the advent of so many different cryptocurrencies, it's definitely not true now. The scarcity value has all but disappeared. There are too many coins and no good way to differentiate the good ones from the bad ones. It's Gresham's law, bad money driving out the good. However you feel about crypto as an investment, the idea that anyone takes them seriously as alternate currencies It's pretty preposterous at this point after the last, say, 24 hours. Remember something like Dogecoin was created as a joke. But the punchline is that Dogecoin is as legitimate as any other cryptocurrency because there's nothing backing most of these things anyway. But because there are so many crypto zealots, it's easier for people in the media to just keep their mouths shut. I'm not begrudging here. I made a great deal of money in Ethereum and Bitcoin, but I now think I just got lucky. And I am reviled for taking most of my crypto off the table. And, and playing with the house's money. What's the matter with that? What about the ascendance of these people who want to talk up their two favorite stocks, the Wall Street bets mob? I'm all in favor of conviction, but GameStop and AMC? I mean, seriously? 
GameStop's been falling apart for years thanks to the rise of digital downloads. Sure, you can buy hardware at their stores, but you can also get it at Amazon or Best Buy. As for AMC, the joke's really on the supporters who allowed CEO Adam Aaron to keep selling stock in order to prevent his company from going bankrupt. What a cause! Of course, if you criticize these folks, they'll try to tear you to pieces. So there's never enough pushback. If an NFL team only ran two plays endlessly, they'd be torn to shreds. But not in this game. Here it's a bold strategy. Next, you've got the incessant criticism of Fed Chief Jay Powell for his statements that inflation is transitory. You've got lots of money managers who want higher rates, and their opinions are taken as gospel, even though they've been wrong for ages. There's zero recognition that the monetary policy paradigm has shifted. And when you have shortages, they do tend to be self-correcting. Powell has no desire to repeat the mistakes of 1937, when the Fed tightened too soon and created a recession within the Great Depression. He knows that we're a long way from full employment. The jobless rate fell to 3.5% without meaningful inflation in 2019. He wants to get us back there. He cares that black unemployment is now almost 10%, and it was 5.5% in 2019. He wants it to be lower. What's so bad about that? Finally, nothing makes me angrier than the outrageous lack of criticism over what ATT is doing to its poor shareholders. There was a man, this man, he was named Randall Stevenson, former CEO. He decided that AT&T had to get into the entertainment business. Why? Well, he was convinced there were spectacular synergies among cell phones and movies and TV and news. He first bought DirecTV for $48.5 billion in 2015. Then three years ago, he acquired Time Warner for, for $85 billion. Now, I've gone through uh, all the old clippings about why he went after Time Warner, and the explanations, frankly, they're dumbfounding. I defy you to come up with a single scintilla of rationale, especially since it was already clear that DirecTV was a huge bust. Stevenson left the company in April of last year. He he didn't go empty-handed. He had a pension valued at $64 million, and he got an additional $27.6 million in deferred earnings. Once he stepped down, John Stanky took over as CEO, and he must have realized that ATT, arguably the most indebted company in America, had to do something immediately to lessen the debt burden while maintaining the precious dividend, the precious dividend that he knew his shareholders' base craved. He knew they craved it. People who own AT&T aren't chasing growth. They're widows, orphans, and grannies who need income. They're the least short-term, most long-term, and most, most trusting investors you could ask for, blindly trusting. But apparently AT&T needed to spend more money to stay competitive with T-Mobile and Verizon. So what does Stanky do? He sells Time Warner for $43 billion and a stake in a new company that will merge with Discovery, another network. Remember, his predecessor paid $85 billion three years ago for this thing. At the same time, Stanky, who'd recently been encouraging people not to worry about the dividend, told you it was fine, goes ahead and slashes the dividend... <laughs> Almost in half. He didn't say it point blank, but the release talked about how the payout would be pegged to cash flow. And when you do the math, that results in a dramatic slash of what most of the shareholders counted on. Of course, they wouldn't even call it a slash or a cut. They called it a resizing, as if it were some sort of suit. Listen, I'm trying to present this story as dispassionately as possible. And you know that. You know I'm not making incendiary charges here. Because we've got something bigger than insults for these guys. Yep, tonight we're dusting off something I've rarely used in 16 years of mad money. And it's called the Wall of Shame. Honestly, I should put ATT's entire board of directors on the wall. But they still have the chance to claw back some of Stevenson's compensation. So let's see what they do. 
Still, I've heard some of these guys talk about how the criticism comes from short-termists, people on trading desks who don't understand. What a joke. Nobody's less short-term than these poor, suffering, dividend-seeking investors. Randall Stevenson and John Stanky, welcome to the wall of shame. Thanks for nothing. I actually waited until a day when the stock was up. It rallied 68 cents. Because unlike management, I didn't want to be complicit in destroying shareholder value. Here's the bottom line. When rich people question why their taxes are going up, when they wonder why they've gotten so unpopular, I want them to look at these two names. They are powerful, tough people who defend their actions to the end, who are actually proud of their actions, or at least they act so. But there's no defense There's no defense against stupidity or depraved indifference. And sadly, there's not much accountability either, other than the sting of the mad money wall of shame. I guess that'll have to do. Joe in Missouri. Joe. Mr. Kramer, it's a pleasure to finally be speaking with you, sir. Thank you. Been a longtime fan, first-time caller, and I want to thank you for all your investment opinion over the years. It's been ah, a big you're help. You're terrific. Thank you. Thank you very much. The company I'm calling about today, uh, large cap, and I feel like it's very undervalued. Uh, recently in the news with uh, Disney and uh, Netflix deals, they got music, gaming, uh, movies, technology. The company I'm calling about is Sony Corporation, ticker S-O-N-Y. I think Sony is dramatically undervalued, particularly because it's sold off. It has great entertainment properties. Uh, It it doesn't want to merge them with a cell phone company. Maybe that makes it so it's not, uh, let's just say, uh, um, like another company. How about that? A singular company. Uh, But I do think that you've got a very good one there. So I'm I'm in favor of it. Let's go to Emily in Arkansas, please. Emily. Jim, uh, I bought Chipotle a few weeks before they announced the pay increase for employees. And after that, the stock immediately went down. It has continued to move down along with everything else. I'd like your thoughts for a long-term investor. If you're a long-term investor, I think it's the single best play in that industry. It's been going down. A lot of people feel like they can't really afford what they're doing. That's nonsensical. They've got the best best return per average unit. I think Chipotle is a very strong buy here at 1341. All right. Look, uh, How do you defend stupidity? I don't know. I can't do it. We had to bring back the mad money wall of shame for these two. And we did it dispassionately, okay? But I will tell you, this is not a list that you want to find yourself in. On Mad Money Tonight, with all the headlines surrounding Bitcoin, you may have missed a remarkable rally in gold. Could the wild moves in the cryptocurrency make the precious metal that much more attractive? I'm talking to the CEO of Barrick Gold. Then nearly one year after George Floyd's murder, I'm sitting down with the CEO of Bank of America to find out how the company continues to address underlying issues that people and communities of color face. And last week, President Biden signed an executive order aimed at strengthening U.S. cybersecurity defenses. What does it mean for a company like Palo Alto Networks? I've got the exclusive with the CEO after earnings. Stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? 
Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. For years, crypto enthusiasts have told us that Bitcoin and its ilk are a stable store of value and a great way to hedge against inflation. I agree with that. But now that inflation has arrived, the whole crypto complex is not doing that well. We're discovering that these are more speculative assets, not hard assets. If you really want insurance against inflation, I've always told you to buy some gold. Sure enough, the precious metal's up roughly 12% in a little more than two months. Unlike Bitcoin, we know gold still goes up at moments like this. And the best way to own it, I think it's, well, let's just say Barrick Gold, the minor form when Rand Gold merged with the old Barrick a few years ago. Earlier this month, the company reported a strong quarter along with a special capital distribution that takes its yield up above 3%. If you think gold prices can make a run at their highs from last summer, as I do, then this $25 stock is headed back to $30 at the very least. Earlier today, we got a chance to speak with Dr. Mark Bristow, the indomitable president and CEO of Barrick Gold, about all these issues. Take a look. Dr. Bristow, welcome back to Mad Money. Hello, Jim. How are you? Well, Mark, I got to tell you, you're the person I trust because you're a philosopher of gold as well as a nuts and bolts guy. You always told me that there would come a day where we would recognize that cryptocurrencies were not storeholds of value because they could lose value very fast, but that's not the way gold works. We had a 30% decline in Bitcoin in a few minutes yesterday. Was that the revelation that others need to know that gold's the real deal and maybe crypto isn't? Absolutely, Jim. That's exactly it. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, I've been saying that for a long time. What can I say? Well, what I see you doing is offering a product that not only has a storehouse of, uh, of real value, but is now throwing off enough money to actually give you a dividend, another sign that this might be a better asset than crypto. Exactly. And, you know, we spoke about this many years ago with Rand Gold Resources. And, you know, when we did the merger with Rand Gold Resources and Barrick, we set out to do two things, fix the ba- three things, fix the balance sheet and boy, employ the best people in the industry so that you can deliver good results and make sure that we are return driven because we focus on tier one assets. What I like is that there's no short ter- termism with you. You've got a long term plan for your assets. You've got gold at a very high price now, but that's never been what's driven you. What's driven you is excellence in engineering and excellence in recovery and also ESG. If it leads to a great return, then even better for Barrick shareholders. Exactly. And, you know, and it's the whole spectrum of ESG. It's just not environment. It's also, most importantly, in fact, social, as we've seen lots of things happening around the world over this last year and just recently, and we need to have licenses to operate. And as I've said to you many times before, mining is here. It's a very important part of everyday activity. It contributes to everything we do every day, but it's how we do it. And we need to be responsible miners and we need to make sure that we are those miners that are gonna be around for the future. Now, one other thing that you talk about in your last quarter, there's a right near the end of the conference call. This is the uh, May, May 5th conference call. You say that uh, you, you're, you're asked about copper and you say, I think everyone, again, has been caught flat footed in this copper price run up. 
Everyone but you, sir. You have a great deal of copper. What ability do you have to expand that to be even a larger part of Barrick's mosaic? Because we know that copper is not only not going away, but is used aggressively in electronic vehicles. Something new besides piping. Or is Barrick ready to profit from it? Yes. And I think just to put it in perspective, gold is a precious metal. And copper is probably the most strategic metal looking ahead. Uh, If you believe in ESG, and I'm sure we all do, uh, copper is a key component. Whatever you look to to the future, if you want to have clean energy, if you want to have clean vehicles. And so um, we have 20% of our businesses copper. And and as you know, Jim, I try to do a few things uh, uh, back in 2019. Um, but that didn't work out. But what we're doing is investing in our future, not only hunting for those tier one gold bonds, but also looking on how we can upgrade the quality of our copper portfolio. But today, with the copper price as it is, it's a great contributor to our cash flow. Well, I'm looking at what you're thinking about doing in terms of uh, you wrote our copper exposure in your most recent deck. And it seems like that you do have the ability uh, to ramp, if you'd like to, past the 20 percent of of your uh, equivalent there. Is it possible to just really blow out copper, Mark? Can you just start producing much more copper than you do right now? No, no, we can't. We we are restricted un, un, unless we want to go and high grade the mines. And as you know, uh, Jim, this is a long term game. You don't right. do things for short term. And but we have a, a a significant presence in all the big copper regions around the world, whether it's Asia Pacific in Papua New Guinea or uh, Zambia and DRC, which is the Central African Copper Belt, right. which are very high grade copper opportunities. And then we're in Chile and Peru and Argentina as well. And, of course, we're in the United States. Well, uh, one last question. Uh, The people in Bitcoin are always so happy. They say, listen, there's a limited amount of Bitcoin. That's why it's that's another reason why it's of great value. The fact is there is a very limited amount of gold that's being extracted every year because it's so hard to get. Gold is something that is worth the price of what it sells at, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And just a little statistic. Do you know that we haven't replaced more than 50 percent of the gold that we've mined since the turn of the century? So as a mining industry, gold miners haven't been able to replace the reserves that they've mined, not more than 50 percent. We've only replaced 50 percent of the gold we've mined. So and we've talked about peak gold, uh, Jim, in the past. It's a very real situation and and you can't make it up well, <laughs> that's one thing you can't do is you no one can print gold no we can <laughs> still make cryptocurrencies they can't print gold and that's why you have been insp- instrumental in me be saying since we started the show 16 years ago put 10 percent of your assets in gold thank you so much dr mark bristow president and ceo of barrack gold i always love to see you sir thank you Thank you. Thank you, Jim. But I don't mind you doing crypto. But remember, gold's the real deal. Stay with me. Coming up, they've committed to set the standard with a $25 minimum wage. Can Bank of America reward investors and lead the financials in the post-pandemic recovery? Kramer's got the CEO next. 
Late last year, we had the honor of speaking with Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan about his ambitious new plans to help build wealth in underprivileged communities, including $50 million of direct investments in minority depository institutions and $200 million of equity investments in minority-owned funds and businesses. We heard a lot of talk about racial justice last year, unusual for big business, and I wasn't sure if these companies would follow through. But some of them put their money where their mouth is. Just this morning, Bank of America revealed that they blew through that $200 million target. They've already put $250 million to work in minority-focused funds. So they're raising their goal to $350 million. company also made 17 direct investments in minority depository institutions and community development financial institutions. Oh, and two days ago, Bank of America decided to raise its minimum wage to $25 here in the United States. A very bold move. I think it's easier for management to get away with this kind of thing because the stock's been on a tear lately, up more than 70% since early November, even though it's still cheap at less than 14 times earnings, especially after their latest fabulous earnings report. When I say get away with, this man wants people to be compensated well. That's why I want to check in with Brian Moynihan, the chairman and CEO of Bank of America, to get a better sense of how his company's doing and doing well. Mr. Moynihan, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, Jim, it's great to be here again, and thank you for having me. Of course. Brian, you are, uh, I'm going to embarrass you for a second. You may be the world leader in inclusive capitalism. I know that you don't tout it and you don't go around saying it, but when I see something like this, where you went through your goal and then added more, and I read through all of the websites of the institutions you gave it to, I have to tell you, you are a person who follows up on your word. Let, I want to know how you're doing it why you're doing it, and whether others are going to follow you, because you are the leader. Well, thanks, Jim. And how we're doing it is the talented teammates that work for our company and their dedication to the purpose. So if you think about, let's just stay with the private equity funds, the venture capital funds. You know, we said last year that we'd do $200 million, um, of our billion-dollar program, which is now a billion and a quarter. But our billion-dollar program we, we ended up going through that already. We have 90 funds, $250 million, and so we've raised that goal to $350 million. But how do we do it? A fellow named Kareem Asif came over from the investment bank. He basically said the investment bankers to help us you know, sort through all the funds, do you want to work on it? 25 investment bankers showed up to help work on it. Then we went to our 90 market presidents and said, find these funds. And they found them and they brought them in. And then it built on itself. And so we're proud to say that we've got $260 million committed as of today, about 92 funds committed as of today. We complete a couple more, and we're going to keep doing it. 74% of them are run by black uh, fund owners. 20-some uh, uh, percent of them are Hispanic fund operators. And 50% are women. And we'll keep rounding that out with more Hispanic and Native American, Asian American as the program continues to roll through. I want people to know what happens when they get this money. For instance, uh, co-founder and general partner Yasmin Cruz Farine, who is from Visible Hands in Boston, one of the organizations that Brian's company gave money to, said in 2019, 10,000 millionaires were created in Silicon Valley after the IPOs and acquisitions of technology startups. I want to change the face of those 10,000 millionaires to be more reflective of the U.S. population. Brian, is that possible? It's possible. If you do like we did and put our money where our mouth is and actually we're not giving the money here. We're investing the money with these aggressive, talented people like you just talked about. They're going to make investments in 2,000 companies, and that's going to help multiple ways. One is those 2,000 companies are going to employ a diverse population. Two, the owners of the, of the, of the companies along with the private equity investors are going to share in the wealth created through the entrepreneurship. And then the operators of the funds are going to 
who they are is also going to create earned wealth for them and, and wealth across the, uh, their, their lifetime. So we feel proud to help this. But it comes from that, you know, being focused on doing the right thing for shareholders, earning good money for them, and delivering for society back to that genius and you and I have talked about from time to time. But it also comes from the way you were brought up. It comes from your ethical beliefs. It comes from things that a lot of people were taught to, to check at the door when they got to institutions like the one that you work at. Well, it's not it's not me. It's our team that does such a great job. And, you know, you, you and I had Darren Williams from Southern Bancorp on a few months ago, and we talked about the minority depository institutions. We've now completed 17 of those. We're still working on more of them. We've done our first Native American one, Hispanic ones. We will continue to work on them. And, you know, some of them don't need the money, but if they need the money, we're there to put the equity in to help them grow and supply services to them. So the colleagues in the bank industry were supplying through the clearinghouse the, the real-time payments help for these institutions, and, and we're trying to help them any way they can to serve the community in ways we couldn't. So it's a team that does all the work, and it's wonderful to be with such a talented team that produce, produces the earnings we need to produce and delivers for the communities. A lot of people are concerned about inflation. They're worried about wages. I'm worried about wages, and you're worried about wages. People don't make enough in this country. I hear people say, well, hold on, he's giving a 25 $25 minimum wage, how are they going to make their numbers? How about the fact that people deserve $25 an hour because they work really hard and they're part of Bank of America? Well, we have a talented team. So a few years ago, a decade ago now, we took a look and said, wait a second, our teammates in a company that earns the kind of money we can earn over time should be, never be, you know, always be good earners. And we want to hire people with career mindsets that stay with us and so we started on a path, and we got to $15 an hour. Then we said, you know what? We've got to go further. We went to $20 an hour, completed that a year early last year, and now we've said $25 an hour. But what's that meant? Turnover's way down. The people are more committed to the company. They do a better job for our teammates. And you can't think of a year which those teammates had to do a lot for our customers and clients, which was last year up until now in the pandemic. Those teammates in the branches, those teammates in the call center, all doing a lot of work in conditions that were just different than they've ever had. And you know, we said no layoffs last year. We got through that. We, we provide great health care. Uh, we provided a child care benefit for $100 a day so people could hire people to take care of their kids. And now we're pushing the wages up because, frankly, we want our teammates to have a career mindset when they join us and then stay with us. And, and we want that kind of talent in our company, and we're willing to pay what it takes to get it. You know, uh, I couldn't agree more in the time we have left. The health of the consumer, I believe, is actually uh, not equal. There are some people who are not doing well, and you are doing your best to help them. But there are a lot of people in this country who actually, the consumer's getting pretty healthy, aren't they? Yeah, it's, it's been, so start with on the debt side, you look at debt levels are down, uh, delinquencies are places we've, you know, the industry's never seen them. It, it, remember, unemployment went all the way up to 15%, and now down is around 6%. But here's a statistic that I had the team look at again yesterday or day before. For people who had less than $1,000 in a bank account, average balance on a monthly basis before the pandemic, they're now running seven times that amount in their account. For people who had between one and 2000 they're running three times. For people between two and 5000 they're running two times. So the stimulus has been applied and delivered to the, to the people who needed it most, and that's good. And yet the good news is, even with spending up almost 20% of where it was in 2019, so think about that growth. In a, in an amount of spending that's 20% bigger than it was when we were, were rolling along. Think about that with this much money still in people's accounts. So it should bode well. As people get back to work, we've got to still get that unemployment rate down. Right. 
The wages are rising. It's a good for the economy, and it's good for America. Thank you. No complaints about it. It's good for the economy. It's good for the America. It's good for Bank of America shareholders, too. What's the matter with that? No mind saying that. I'll do it because you're too humble to do so. Brian Moynihan, Chairman and CEO of Bank of America. Thank you for everything you do, sir. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. We'll see you again soon. Can I say, it's okay. Business is the greatest source of, of social change in this country. They have money's back in. The cybersecurity stocks have stalled over the past few months as part of the broader rotation out of high-flying growth names and into a great reopening place. But many of these companies keep delivering incredible numbers. And maybe we've gotten to the point where that's going to matter again. Take Palo Alto Networks, the best-of-breed cybersecurity play, with a stock that's now down more than 50 bucks from its February highs, even though it's doing far more than, than anyone could ask for. Tonight, Palo Alto reported an excellent top and bottom line beat. Great guidance for the current quarter, and management dramatically raised their full-year forecast. In the stock's actually getting some lift. So can it keep climbing? Let's take a closer look with Nikesh Arora. He's the chairman and CEO of Palo Alto Networks. Find out more about the quarter and the company's prospects. Mr. Arora, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank you for having me again, Jim. Okay, Nikesh, it looks like that this combination of work from home, which you said would be hybrid and proved to be right far earlier than everybody else said, and of course, unfortunately, the most recent cybersecurity issues have produced uh, a, a focus of, uh, on security that is unparalleled, and your company is really, really, really at the forefront. Yes, Jim. Well, as uh, you and I have talked about this a lot before, this work from home thing is here to stay. And what we're noticing is most large companies are now very focused on creating an equitable environment for people wherever they work from. Now, that equitable environment can only be created if you have the same technology in the enterprise working from where, for you from wherever you are. And we've seen a phenomenal uplift in our remote security products, in a lot of our SASE products, which you call them, is really been sort of going up and to the right. And we talked about this two or three quarters ago where we'd given away free trials to all of our customers, and we're really seeing the fruit of those, uh, those trials come through in the expectation of our customers. Secondly, as you highlighted, the conversation's gone from the IT department to boardrooms and even to the White House. You know, unfortunately, we're running through these ransomware attacks right now, which are top of mind, but if you reel back, Actually, what's causing these ransomware attacks is the solar winds and the Microsoft Exchange and the Code Corp crisis we've seen in the past. Hackers have gone in, settled into large enterprise infrastructures, and, and you know, people have sat there and said, we've dodged a bullet. Well, it's time to stop thinking about having dodged a bullet and make sure your enterprise is secure because they're going to get there. Uh, well, if you can, you've got to go ahead and protect your enter- enterprise because... The, the hackers are going to get into your enterprise. Well. We just heard of a very good financial company, one of the best I know, paying $40 million yeah. in ransomware. I mean, the, the company is a good senior, is an excellent company. And then Colonial Pipeline, they had to pay. And what this says to me is, are they spending enough? Are they calling you and saying, look, we can't afford for the, the B package or the C package. You've got to give us the A package. I mean, are people understanding that it's come down to that? You know, Jim, um, the challenge has been that cybersecurity has has been bought in a fragmented fashion just the way uh, IT was bought, which made sense, but it didn't make sense with cybersecurity. You've got to make sure your piece parts of cybersecurity work together. Three years ago when you and I talked, I said we're going to go build three platforms. We have. We built a cloud security platform. We built a network security platform. And we built a SOC automation platform. Those platforms are bearing themselves out. They're helping us out. I think we are seeing increased attention from our customers and trying to make sure they're their sort of infrastructure is secure. 
I think we're in the early stages of this journey. I think a lot of companies have to go back to the drawing board, rethink their cybersecurity posture, make sure they're protected, make sure they're protected against all these events in the future. Because today, technology is the lifeline of your business. If your technolo technology stack stops, you can't work. As you've seen, the reason people are paying for ransomware is because they're locking you out of your systems, hence your business stalls. One of the things that you've also taught us uh, is that as much as Palo Alto was an on-premises, viewed as an on-premises cybersecurity company, you decided that's not enough. Obviously, you, you want to be in the cloud. What I thought was very interesting on uh, uh, part of your page 16 of your deck is that sure enough, you are now the largest cloud native security business in the country. I have not called you that. So you've done some things that I, I should have acknowledged. I have talked about other cloud native security companies thinking, well, I hope you catch them. It looks like you caught, caught them in the past. Well, you know, if you look at the different parts of our business, Jim, there's a network security part. Now, what's fascinating is the market is too focused on hardware only network security companies. Uh, if you look at what we've done in the last three years, 40% of our firewall business is now software. And I'm sure you're going to ask me about chip shortages. The good news is we're shifting away from hardware to software. So the more we shift to software, the more non-reliant we are on hardware chipsets because we're delivering the capability from software. Not only is it easier to deliver, it's easier to maintain, reduce the total cost. So the world is going to shift towards software-defined security. And we're already there with 40% of our network security business. In addition to that, we've built an entirely new cloud security business with Prisma Cloud, where we boast 2,250 customers and about 25% of the global 2,000 from scratch in the last two and a half years. Well, look, I think that you need partners. And I thought, again, in your excellent deck, clearest I feel that you've done since you've taken over, uh, you've got two partners. Actually, you have three partners that you need. You need service provider partners. You have Orange. Now, I'm not yeah. as familiar with Orange, but I know they're huge. But Comcast Business, of course, I work for Comcast and Verizon. Those are who I would say you need if you're going to work from home and be protected. Is that the meaning of those partnerships? Yeah, you know, what's happening, Jim, is that, you know, we rely on our telecom companies to provide us the access. You've got to have reliable access wherever you are if you're going to work securely. Now, that reliable access has to be coupled with reliable security. So what we've been able to do is work with those service providers to make sure that we become their security partner. They obviously are the best of breed access providers. And that marriage allows our customers, large customers, to feel safe, letting their employees access their crown jewels from anywhere. And uh, you're doing this, obviously, uh, you only highlight three, but I guess multiple eight-figure deals or else you wouldn't be able to have those incredible numbers or the ability to be able to forecast because these are not one-off deals. Yeah, Jim, uh, what's interesting, three years ago when I joined Palo Alto Networks, I said to the team, there's only two ways for us to keep doubling our revenue. Keep doubling your number of customers or keep doubling the amount of value you add to each customer. And we're trying to do both. And part of what we've been able to re-engineer is provide an entire platform capability, which allows our customers to end up with a much more secure platform, also allows us to increase our revenue per customer because we are providing a much better value across multiple platforms to them. So I think it's good for them and it's good for us. Well, it's good for shareholders too. The stock's up big and it'll continue to go up because this is exactly what we need at a time when we're discovering ransomware, it's being paid and it shouldn't be. But I guess some companies have no choice because they haven't done the work. Nikesh Arora, Chairman CEO of Palo Alto Networks. Congratulations on a great quarter. Thank you, Jim. Guys, cybersecurity, I know we don't want it, but if we have to try to, if we have to live with it, let's try to make money with a company that knows what it's doing to try to stop it. That money's back in. Just chill out. Is this Chill Master Jay? The Chill Man is in the house. He's happy. The lightning round is coming up when Mad Money returns. 
It is time! Some of the lady records about the Raffigos want to say bye-bye-bye to the and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski? That is up for the lightning round, Chris Money. Let's start with Zach in Texas. Zach. Jimbo Booyah from Bayou City, energy capital of the world. How are you today, sir? Strong day for me. How about you? Awesome. Doing I'm great. chilling. Hey, I'm, I'm in a show of chill. Company. All right, what's up? I'm calling about an Austin-based company producing an electrified powertrain system that can be retrofitted for existing commercial vehicles. The company has been ramping up its workforce, and a deal with Detmar Logistics appears to may have given this stock some life after drowning in this EV sell-off ever since it became public to tortoise acquisition last fall. Okay. What do you recommend on Helion, ticker symbol HYL? Look, I mean, I, I'll tell you what's happened. These companies are all doing what they should do, but the market doesn't like them as much as they used to, including Hylion. It is doing exactly what it should do, so longer term it should pay it out. Let's go to Steven in Florida. Steven! Yes, hi. Uh, thank you for taking my call, Mr. Kramer. Of course, Steve. Um, I'm a 74-year-old Vietnam era veteran. Okay. I have a lot. I have a large position in PaySafe, PSFE, but my cost basis is 16.85. What do I do? Well, look. I remember that. That is Bill Foley, who's a he's made about a hundred billion dollars for people. I thought he came on and articulated a very, very strong position. And if Bill's in there, then I think you can buy more, frankly. Let's go to Jimmy in Oregon. Jimmy. Hi, Jim. Hope you're doing well. Doing well. Thank you for asking. How about you? Good, good. Um, I just want to say thank you for all you do because of your suggestions. I had my best year in the market in 2020. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, the stock I'm calling about, I believe, extremely undervalued. It's backed by one of your favorite companies, Lithia Motors. Um, I'm curious to know what you think about ship technologies. Well, I like ship, but well, but you mentioned the one I really like, which is which is a, a, a Lithia. Lithia did a gigantic deal, three what three point one million shares uh, down about ten, and it rallied. Where did it go out? I mean, Lithia did fantastic, and Lithia, of course, you know, my daughter lived there, so that's why I'm very sensitive. Got three hundred thirty-eight. I mean, up to eight dollars. That that's the one to buy. They are a very very good company. All right, we need to go to Jimmy in North Carolina. Jimmy! Booyah, Mr. Kramer. Booyah. Hey, um, wanted you to give a quick shout-out to my mom who turns 92 next ah. week. She's a big fan of CNBC and Mad Money. Well, tell her thank you for watching, and happy birthday. All right, thank you. Uh, my stock is symbol U-T-Z, Ut Brand. Utz did what not you- have a good quarter. Uh, it's just now showing what's like to have to not have the scale that Frito-Lay has. I would prefer you to buy PepsiCo because we're at a time where freight and cost of goods sold are going up and Uts can't pass it on as easily as Frito-Lay can. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up. Kramer's warning on a Faustian crypto strategy that can turn a Brahma bull into a slaughtered pig. Sometimes it's not what you buy, but how you buy it. Next. Regulation isn't rocket science. Some of this stuff is very straightforward, especially when we're talking about the use of borrowed money to buy securities or similar assets. Yesterday, we saw an asset that was recently worth a trillion dollars drop 31% in a few brief moments, only to come back 30% a few hours later. 
Anyone who knows anything about securities can tell you this kind of erratic movements caused by over-leveraged traders who couldn't put up enough capital when their cryptocurrency of choice plummeted, triggering margin calls. Remember, when you buy using borrowed money, your broker needs collateral. So when your investment loses value, you have to put up additional cash. If you can't come up with the money, well, then they liquidate your position. That's what happened yesterday. Now, I know it will take time for our government to make new regulations covering crypto. I respect that. I believe in due process. But there's a lot the regulators can do without making new rules. And I can't stand it when they fail to recognize the power of their own words. With just a few turns of phrase, they can create more order than months of hearings on rulemaking that will only be finished once the horse has left the barn. That's why either Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen or SEC Chairman Gary Gensler needs to simply come out and say they're uncomfortable with all the leverage that you're seeing in these crypto markets. That's it. Today, we saw Treasury opine about how cryptocurrencies allow people to shift their income tax-free, which is a genuine problem. But it's also totally not the biggest problem, which is stopping this crypto margin train wreck before it happens. Meanwhile, the Fed's musing about studying the possibility of maybe issuing a white paper on crypto. But you don't need a white paper to notice when there's too much leverage in a speculative asset. I'm glad the Fed is thinking about debating the possibility of examining the notion that perhaps there are some issues with crypto, maybe as soon as the summer. But by then, it could be too late. So what can the regulators do without actually making new regulations? Well, they can talk. This is what I want to hear from the Treasury of the SEC, and I quote, We don't like how much leverage we're seeing in crypto. We urge individuals to get off margin. We urge institutions not to lend money to potential buyers of these securities, end quote. Then they can follow up by saying that they'll seek to shut down any institution that's offering excessive leverage, especially those that are giving clients 100 to 1 money, meaning every dollar you put up buys you $100 of of a cryptocurrency of your choice. And by the way, that is happening. I wonder what those firms' books look like that are doing that. The Fed should, too. Further, they can fire a warning shot. I think they should announce that while they may not have the power to shut down these institutions right now, they'll eventually come after any brokerage that's offering more margin for cryptocurrencies than they offer for stocks. For stocks, the most you can get is four to one money. That way, without an ounce of cumbersome rulemaking, they can stop this lunacy in its tracks before people lose tens of billions of dollars and all sorts of shadow institutions we don't even know about go belly up. Far too many regulators underestimate the power of their own words. But words are exactly what could add an element of prudence to this Wild West behavior. I think it should come easily to Gary Gensler at the SEC. He slammed the entire industry when he wrote The Great Mutual Fund Trap back in 2002. It was a revolutionary attack, and by the way, a great book, on how investors were getting built out of billions by the mutual fund business. Just because he's now SEC chairman doesn't mean he can't say something similar about the crypto craziness. In fact, I think it's even more imperative that he does the right thing right here, right now. Way back in 2006, the Federal Reserve knew people were buying homes with no money down, shoddy documentation. They watched helplessly as the housing market got more and more heated, while investment banks created arcane and abstruse securities around those bogus mortgage bundles. Yet the Fed did nothing except raise interest rates after raise interest rates, throwing the whole economy into a terrible recession. I often wonder how things might have been different if Fed Chief Ben Bernanke had simply made a statement condemning this kind of lending, encouraging bank examiners to start demanding more collateral, along with real documentation. Had Bernanke just said, I favor banks and insist on making people put 20 percent down, we still could have had a big meltdown, but it would never have been the Great Recession. So if Gensler or Yellen want the crypto craze to end when it comes to the leverage side of it, rather than leaving the regulation of this huge new market up to, I don't know, Elon Musk, they just have to open their mouths and condemn it. The fact that they seem reluctant to use their bully pulpit is incredibly disappointing. If they don't issue this kind of statement against leverage immediately, I think they'll come to regret it.
I'd like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. <laughs>